Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. This week, the NHS turns 75. Arguably born in the mining valleys of South Wales, the organisation has become one of, if not the most loved institution in the UK. But it has always had controversy. From its conception, when not all clinicians were supportive, to the resignation of its creator, Nye Bevan, over the introduction of charges for dental and visual care. Last week was no exception, as the UK Gov announced a workforce plan doubling training places to address the over 100,000 plus vacancies that the UK's largest employer currently boasts, through to the Welsh Health Minister telling us all we have to live healthier. Joining us tonight to discuss all things NHS are Will Hayward, award-winning journalist and Welsh Affairs Editor for Wales Online. Hello, Will. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. We've got Jen Rankin, a practicing GP in Cardiff with an interest in family planning and substance misuse. Hello, Jen. Hello. And we've got Gemma Roberts, who is a health policy specialist currently with physicians at the British Heart Foundation, Obesity Alliance Cymru, and on the board of Samaritans Cymru. Hello, Gemma. Hi, Matt. So whilst it's very easy at the minute to pull out all the bad things that are happening in the NHS, the reality is it looks after thousands of people every single day from cradle to grave and everything in between but sometimes we just don't recognize that enough so if I could be so presumptive would it be possible for each of us to kick off with something that we want to celebrate about this incredible institution Jen do you want to start us off well my dad was born in 1948 the year that the NHS was created and um, I have a, a bit of a history with it in terms of my grandmother's both of whom were GPs, actually. So the, the women in my family were doctors <laughs> for many generations. And my gran was a self-single-handed GP who transitioned her single-handed practice into an NHS practice uh, throughout having children and uh, inspired me into medicine. Both of them did from a very young age for all the right reasons. The cradle-to-grave aspects, the community, care and science all of the ways that you could help people. And what I love about the NHS, particularly having speak, spoken to a number of my friends in the US, is how I never sit there going, well, where's your insurance certificate? Can you pay for this? I just give my care. And that's what I love, is that it's totally financially unbiased care. And that's one of the things that I love about it. I'm not sure if anything changed on that realm. I would want to stay in it, to be honest. So... I love working in it, actually. I'm one of those happy GPs, relatively happy, I would say. I mean, who is 100% happy? But I love my job. I love the fact I get to work with a great team of people, care for people, see people get better, walk them through their difficult journeys, the wonderful celebratory journeys, and, and forge my way into community that way. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. Thanks, Jen. Gemma, what about you? Yeah, I think probably my best example is a personal story. So about 10 years ago, I lived in the Netherlands for a year and it was all kind of international people living there from across Europe and the rest of the world. And um, one person got mumps and then it kind of went around everybody that we knew and everyone got mumps. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to get this. And then I realized I'd been vaccinated. And then I kind of thought of all the, you know, all the vaccinations that I'd had without even thinking about it, that were just completely free to me, um, that I was now safe from, from this disease that everybody else got that I didn't get. Um, I mean, it was a pain because I had to then go and do their shopping and stuff. But, you know, it really made me think how lucky we are to have the NHS. Thanks, Gemma. What about you, Will? 
suppose it's just the uh, fact it exists, isn't it? I think uh, it's easy to take it for granted. We did um, a story the other day, which we just went for our picture archive and we got 50 pictures from Cardiff in 2015 uh, to 2020, uh, sorry, 1915 to 1923. And then we sent a photographer out to get the same pictures in the same spot. And there was a picture going down Queen Street. And it actually, in lots of ways, was fairly similar. The only difference was you didn't have the Nye Bevan statue. And you saw people walking up and down. And I was, we were just saying how people walking up and down there would have been, probably wouldn't have believed you if you'd said in 100 years' time there'd been a statue to someone who had bought in universal healthcare. And that they would have, that if they had any ailment, and I imagine 1923, there was a lot of ailments walking up and down Queen Street. That said, I went up and down Queen Street today and there was a lot of ailments walking up and down Queen Street. Um, but um, I think it would have just, uh, it would have just blown their minds. And then, you know, I think the very fact that we have this universal healthcare for, for everyone, it, it tends to attract people to work in it who share that value. Um, and it, I know it's when we're covering stories about the, the Welsh NHS, especially around governance and the, the Welsh government, we're always really strive to kind of say look we're not this isn't uh, an attack for want of a better word on people who work in it this is on behalf of those people who i think deserve every support to do what is a very difficult and i imagine rewarding job jen obviously it's beloved the nhs but it has been facing some difficult times well since covid and probably before but as people get older and need those services a little bit more is it fair to say that as it hits 75 the nhs needs a little bit of care itself? Absolutely. The, we all know the NHS is limping. You know, it's, it's done so well to last as long as it has in, in its current form, but it absolutely needs care. You know, what was originally designed for a much smaller, younger population is now a, it, you know, it treats people... I mean, I don't know how much the population has doubled, but I remember see, reading some figures from the RCGP talking about how demand for GP consultations has gone up about 50% over the last 10, 15 years. And I can tell you, we feel it. It's, uh, and the more people in the system without a catch up of, uh, of clinicians, the, the more pressure on those appointments, the more pressure on the services there is going to be, which then means that it's trying to sift through what really needs to be seen. How can you see it as best possible? How can you see it in less time? How can you treat it with less resources? And so, yes, it's, um, I mean, they've obviously launched this new sort of plan to boost numbers of doctors and nurses and other staff, which I think is absolutely timely, would have probably been useful about 15 years ago. Um, but, you know, as with all things, we react, don't we? And we react when the, the voice is the loudest. So the, they always say, don't they, the loudest voice in the room is the one you pay attention to. And I think the pandemic made us realize even more acutely the demand on, on the NHS as we focused as a nation on what was really important at that time, which was healthcare, keeping people safe, getting people vaccinated, all of that. Gemma, what are your thoughts on the sort of TLC the NHS might need at the minute? I don't know if it's TLC or care. I'm, I think maybe it's more about how things are done and whether or not there are more effective and efficient ways to do those things and how quickly we implement good practice. Because I think at the moment there is not kind of a uniform 
practice in many areas across the NHS and I don't think we're particularly good at kind of getting from policy to working out yeah this is the best way to do things to actually doing things in that way and so you know GP time that's kind of wasted for example doing things like blood pressure testing which is really easy or you know and, and that can be done at home um so things that actually the nhs maybe doesn't need to be doing that can be taken out of those settings i think that's sort of yeah good policy rather than uh than, than care is what i would say the nhs needs well obviously you know the nhs has rarely been out of the news ever since it was created but you've done some pretty hard-hitting pieces in the last few months on the state of the welsh nhs would you mind talking us through a couple of those big stories you've looked at you know from waiting lists to NHS funding, though we may pick you up on Betsy specifically a little bit later. Yes, that's a, a fun rabbit hole to go down. Um, so um, the, I, I suppose uh, there's, there's been a few, it's um, uh, the one around um, two year two year waits um, was, was a key one and it was um, trying to find out really what was behind, behind those figures because some of the figures um, for, for the two year waits were starting to keep decrease. Um, the Welsh government are very, probably understandably, reluctant to compare their two year waits with England where, where there are technically none. Um, and you know, on one hand, that is understandable because Welsh NHS and the England, NHS in England measure two year waits in different ways, how pathways reset, it's, um, it's, quite, it's quite complicated, but also there, there is no doubt that there are a lot of people waiting. Well, I think it's about 30,000 at the moment waiting and that isn't coming down very quickly um quickly at all um part of that investigation kind of demonstrated um for a series of freedom information requests we kind of showed that actually a lot of that the numbers that had come down simply because people had died on those waiting lists um not necessarily of the ailment of which they were waiting for treatment for um but they the title of that piece was living and dying in pain and mm. um wh whether or not it, it was the thing they were waiting for treatment for, but ultimately um, ended their life. I, I think it it showed the um, the hollowness of a health minister or a first minister standing up in the Senate and going, "Well, it is going down." And ultimately, if, if that's the reason, that isn't necessarily the best um, reason. That isn't to say that's the only reason that they're going down. And there has been an acceleration, uh, especially towards the end of the spring. Um, the second, well, the another piece um, was looking at NHS funding. So I think there's a key issue with accountability right at the very top in terms of politicians. So the UK government, um, if you ever watch for, um, First Minister's Questions, you can tell I work in Wales a lot, the um, Prime Minister's Questions, um, any question from Keir Starmer to Rishi Sunak will be answered by saying, look at the NHS in Wales. It's performing badly. This is terrible. This is what happens if you have Labour in charge. And any question to Mark Drakeford in the Senate will be responded to, well, we don't receive enough money. So both sides completely advocating their responsibility and actually both sides have a role in it. So over the course of many, many, many technical briefings and um, we tried to work out who would actually shortchanged um, the NHS and the, the answer was kind of almost usefully journalistically was both of them. Um, so the UK government has indeed uh, in real terms drastically cut the amount of money Wales has, which is a simplification, but you know, I haven't got forever. Um, but the Welsh government also doesn't pass on the equivalent amount of NHS funding. Um, basically, the amount of money spent in England, there's a, a um, Barnet consequential that comes to Wales. The Welsh government doesn't pass all of that on to the NHS. Um, it spends disproportionately more on education and housing. Now, there's perfectly legitimate reasons for arguing why that isn't a bad thing. Um, 
you know, children growing up in uh, good housing and having good education are likely to have better health outcomes in the future, for example. But the Welsh Group could spend more on its NHS. It's made a political decision not to. And it's, I think, um, disingenuous of them to act like they haven't made that political decision, especially um, in um, 2011 to 2013, when actually they didn't pass on a huge amount in order to ring fence other um, areas from cuts that were coming from Westminster. So um, this sounds dry, is because it is quite dry. And part of my job is to try and make this accessible because I think ultimately people, anyone who's using the NHS can see that it's really managing to deliver in spite of um, the political support it's supported rather than because of it. Um, and I think having a, being able to point the finger for one of it. I don't think it's always useful to talk about finger pointing and blame, but actually there are political decisions been made which have meant the NHS in Wales is not doing as well as it could be. And I think those pieces have been trying to give people a balanced um, amount of information to form their own opinion. Yeah, Mo, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I just wanted to come in on the stats point about the uh, the length of waiting lists. So I think, yeah, totally agree that it is part of your role to make things accessible. But just I think in that instance, there's possibly a bit of simplifying the stats beyond their actual meaning. Um, the excess, excess deaths do not marry up with the deaths on the waiting lists. And so it sounds like you're insinuating that people are dying because they're on waiting lists when actually there is no connection necessarily to people who are on the waiting lists and people dying whilst on those waiting lists who wouldn't have really sadly, but who wouldn't have died. So I just think the connection between the waiting list and the death seems a little bit disingenuous. No, I, I, I'm sorry if that's um, how um, that point came across. It wasn't, uh, um, not always I saying that the reason that people were dying was because um, they were on a waiting list. I, the point was they were, well, it's two points really. The first was um, they were dying and waiting, and that was a contributing factor to the decline in waiting lists. Um, the other point I would say is they were dying while on a waiting list. And if they're on a waiting list, they needed that treatment. And whether that's a hernia operation or whether that means that the final years of their lives were spent in pain. So I'm not saying that they died because they weren't necessarily receiving that treatment, but I think if you're spent, I mean, some of the part of that piece we looked at, because they only say over two year wait. So we found out how long it was. And there wasn't a small amount of people who were on three, four or five. And there was even some six year waits. Now, some of that can be for medical reasons as well. That doesn't just mean that they haven't been seen quickly. But ultimately, if they are living their final years of their life in pain, which could have been alleviated or mitigated because they're on a waiting list, I think that's something worth exposing. But yeah, not for a second was I suggesting that um, they had all died because they were on a waiting list. Jen, did you have anything to add in here before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I think just talking about, I think with the NHS, there's so many facets to it, isn't it? It's like, it's not a small thing. It's, isn't it the biggest, one of the biggest employers in the UK with a system, as I said, that was created and thought up decades ago that's responding to change, population change, societal change, differences in attitude, there are so many factors. It's like trying to turn the Titanic. You know, you see an iceberg ahead. It's a very, very big ship to change. And it, it takes every part of that ship to be working in sync in order to try and change it. Sometimes the problem with big, big things is the communication and the consistency in terms of the direction and the vision is not always in sync going in the same direction. And 
So you'll have people coming and saying, well, you know, come and do, do this instead. And then so everyone, you know, as it, I experience this in general practice all the time, they'll come and say, right, we brought in this new thing that you've got to start doing. And so we all scrabble around trying to change practice, trying to put, implement these new sort of pathways or ways of doing things. And then, you know, suddenly you've got to change it because there's another new policy coming in and you sort of get used to a new way of working and box ticking. And, and it's difficult because you're trying to streamline and row or steam all in the right direction. And that's why it, it can feel like you're going forwards and then backwards and forwards and then backwards. And some people are shouting loudly over here and other people are shouting loudly over there. And uh, yeah, it's very complicated. And there are absolutely, I don't think anyone would think that there was one way of solving the NHS, which is the big question, isn't it? How do you solve a beast like the NHS? It is, it is so huge. And there are so many things that need to be changed, tinkered with, uh, adapted, stopped. You know, there's going to be hard decisions to make, I think, as well as good decisions. You know, I, I mentioned the, the new thoughts about bringing in a lot more training, reducing medical school training. I'm like, yes, that's such a good idea. It needed to happen years ago. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, of, of streamlining that needs to go on and we need to make it as accessible as possible. Well, Oh, I was just going to say that um, analogy of the Titanic is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to uh, probably steal that at some point for my work. I think it also works well as well because it's the poor people who are most likely to die because they can't yes. get off the ship. They're stuck down in the, the bottom of the ship, aren't they? Playing the accordion yep. and dancing absolutely. with um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a perfect uh, it's a perfect analogy. Like it's it, there's so many so many moving parts, aren't they? And it is the word beast that you said was bang on. I think. Yeah. We we mentioned in the introduction. Um, the workforce plan which UK government announced last week and on my first reading of it and it's very very quickly at the moment it, it does look there's a lot of positives in there I think just the numbers coming in it, 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 what's been needed and like you said Jen it could have been happening 15 20 years ago really but we also then had the Welsh health minister being quite candid and saying that people need to live healthier which I think is is true but it's something you don't hear that often but the reality is we probably need both. And so, Gemma, I know you do things with Obesity Alliance Camry about trying to get people to live healthier and those kind of aspects. You know, what are your thoughts on both those announcements last week? I mean, I'd probably qualify that a little bit. So getting people to live healthier is absolutely not anything that I, I would work towards. It's not about that. It's about population level measures that support people to live healthier lives. So the kind of individual responsibility is that sort of way of framing things is sort of it's it's unhelpful so you know absolutely I was really pleased about the announcement last week uh, specifically around introducing restrictions on price promotions for high fat salt and sugar foods I think it's brilliant that Wales is kind of forging ahead with the legislation knowing that it's so important and I think you know it's been deprioritized in the other nations of the UK and it is particularly problematic because, you know, the NHS is on its knees and we can't continue to have an NHS if we don't invest time and money in prevention because obesity, for example, by 2050, is going to cost the NHS across the UK about £7 billion. Well, it's £7 billion now, sorry. It's going to cost the NHS £10 billion by 2050 so you know this is this is this is money that the nhs doesn't have it's you know people that the nhs doesn't have so we need we need both so we need to invest in the nhs 
proper workforce planning, but you have to look at prevention because if we continue to let, you know, things like overweight and obesity and smoking and alcohol consumption, if they continue to grow, then, or at least with tobacco, to not decrease as fast as we need it to, then, you know, we're, we're, we're going to see the NHS crippled by preventable non-communicable diseases. So I, I do agree, Gemma, in that there has to be some positive policy changes, but I actually do think that putting some level of individual responsibility in terms of our health is really, really important. I think one of the other things that I've seen, I mean, I've been a GP for, well, I've been qualified for 15 years now, and um, but been in the NHS for 20. And I have seen, even in that 20 years, a cultural change in attitudes towards health. There is a lot more attitude towards it's everyone else's responsibility and it's government um, that has that needs to change and actually we ultimately our own poor health affects us individually it does affect it does affect the NHS it does affect society but encouraging people to take ownership doesn't have to be a shameful thing and I think that's it's the it's the nuance of the language that we use to talk about personal responsibility that's important ultimately you know you can put in smoking bans in pubs as was brought in which is absolutely foundational to reducing smoking uptake and putting cigarettes you know adverts banned and putting labels on cigarette packets saying smoking kills but if that individual wants to smoke they will still smoke and it's trying to help that put I mean I this is bread and butter of my job and it, it involves weight reduction it involves substance misuse it involves positive lifestyle changes for mental health as well as the, you know these sort of more lifestyle diseases like diabetes that are linked with obesity and di poor diet I say linked they're not necessarily always causative they're linked but if my job is to help to find a way to motivate that individual to change and it's it's individuals that that we are that I work with, not the whole of society, but you can change societal attitudes in the same way that 40, 50 years ago, the attitudes to smoking wasn't the same as it is now. My gran, as I mentioned earlier, who was a GP way before the NHS began, she was a smoker. And she was involved in the, the groundbreaking 1950s uh, doctor's smoking study, where they proved unequivocally that tobacco smoking has high links with mortality, specifically things like lung cancer, heart disease. And she stopped. She was motivated by the science. Um, but attitudes to smoking have changed. It's taken a long time. But ultimately, society does change, but it starts with the individual. And it is frustrating as a clinician um, to, to see people subcontracting their own personal decisions always to big government. Because it, it sometimes can feel like an easy way out. But like I say, it's, it's about language, it's about reframing it, it's about finding the individual hook that motivates that person to make that positive decision. And, and that's, that's one of the big challenges that we face as coal-faced clinicians Ultimately, we go home, I go home and say, I've done all I can. That patient goes home and they're the ones that have to put something in place. They have to choose to access the services available. They have to choose to 
to engage in, in, in the positive things. And it involves education, it involves policy, but it does involve the individual. And ultimately, we are the ones individually that, that are affected by our individual health choices. Jen, I think I agree in part, but that's assuming that we all start from a level footing with all of the options, the same options as everybody else and the same tools to be able to make these decisions. And we don't. So, you know, if we were all able to make, you know, if we were all in the exact same position to be able to make those decisions, then you wouldn't see such a massive difference in smoking rates between the most and the least deprived or such a huge difference in alcohol consumption across multiple uh, across the Welsh index and multiple deprivation or um, rates of overweight and obesity with the poorest in society being around 10 there are being around 10 percent more um overweight and obesity in the poorest in our society compared to the least deprived so I think if we were on a level playing field then yeah you know we and we all had the same opportunities to be able to make these decisions then yes but I don't believe that we do and so individual responsibility is important to an extent but we also need to take into account massively the backgrounds that people have and how we actually make these decisions easier for people which is something that I believe can only be done through through population-wide policy. Yeah it's both I mean I would like to say that the, the people that I see in terms of substance misuse, the guys and the girls that are coming off heroin, they are often in that lowest group. They are the people who've had the hardest lives. They are really, and what I love about that element of my job, particularly that specific part, they have chosen. They have individually chosen to step into a methadone program to get themselves away. And I, I love that more than anything. Because I, I celebrate the fact that it has been harder than they, than anyone else for them to get out of that, that difficulty that is so multifactorial and so difficult from the very beginning. But yet they have made those decisions. In fact, only in the last week was I celebrating with one of my patients who had he'd been off heroin for a number of years, um, but he's recently managed to stop smoking as well. Because when we're delivering care, it's not just about, in substance misuse, it's not just about stopping them using. It's about giving them holistic health care as well. But ultimately, like I was just saying, I was trying to help motivate this guy to be as healthy as he could. And, and he made that decision and the, the, help, the support was there. Um, so yes, it's policy, absolutely. But my de the danger is, is that we, we, sort of in, we, don't, we don't encourage people to also go on that journey. And it's an amazing thing. People, we're all able to make change. And I think that's the thing is that I'm like, it's not just government that needs to change. All of us are capable of change, um, no matter where we're from, you know. I was just thinking of how much more wholesome Jen's job sounds than mine. Um, <laughs> I think, um, I think that always. The, the thing, the thing I'd, I'd say about that, kind of if you want to smoke, you're going to smoke. I always think about the liberalisation of gambling laws about 20 years ago. That was a, a political decision which made gambling a lot more accessible and a lot more visible and a lot and advertising a lot and able to advertise much more and now if you follow any sport it, it's it's everywhere it's chronic and there's been a huge explosion in things like gambling addiction and and stuff like that and i, I think we, we say about the government governments need to do something about this and it, it's it's a lot easier to from a governmental point of view to just say look you you can't buy three packs of biscuits for the price of two and have an extra pack of biscuits in your house than trying to 
create like long-term behavioral change with an individual i think from a from a governmental perspective i i with limited resources i imagine they would see that as a especially on a like a nationwide level if you if you limit that ability to um and we can go into the ethics of that in with the cost of living crisis and stuff but i, I can see why governments are looking to do it um I think we definitely have a look at that on another pod. Gambling is quite interesting. But, Will, while you're talking, you know, there was a story last week from the BMA in Wales where the chair, I think, was, you know, pretty robust, shall we say, in what she said about the, the health system in Wales was pretty close to collapse. Do you think with your kind of investigative stuff behind the scenes, I mean, this is where you can talk a little bit around Betsy as well, is, is that just a fearful vision or is that something we could really be faced with? I don't think it'll ever ever get to a point where something that big just collapses. Um, I, I just don't think that ha- that kind of happens. I just think it 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 just groans and groans under more strain, doesn't it? Um, I think, like speaking to some some nurses in the first few weeks of the pandemic, um, I'd speak to them and say, "Oh, didn't you think it was awful? You didn't have PPE, for instance, and you had people in like colleges making your face masks and stuff like that." And they said, "Well." this is just kind of what it can be working um, in the NHS. You know, if, if a patient weighs 25 stone and they fall and you don't have a, a proper lift for them, you're going to pick them up, even though that's not spo- how you're supposed to technically pick them up. Because of the nature of the people that work in that organisation, they are going to always just go try and muddle along because they care. I think that the issue becomes when more and more people just feel like this isn't necessarily working for them how they want it to work um but it, it's it's the it's the fish in the it's the fish it's the frog in the slowly boiling um pan isn't it you know you don't you don't realize um i mean back in 2012 2011 there were just no waits over um, three months unless they were for clinical reasons according to the watch government data anyway and um so yeah i, I don't think there's going to be any kind of grand collapse uh, um as it were but because it's, it's so multifaceted isn't it? even if you go into like a large hospital where we a few wards which are really really struggling and are really overwhelmed and there's others which are because of the nature of what they deliver it's such a diverse organization in terms of what it delivers for for patients i don't think it would be anything like a kind of collapse in that way but there's no doubt it's under immense strain and the the relief is not necessarily in sight it 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 is the nhs is is a difficult place to work in at times there's been lots and lots of frustrations particularly compounded by, I wouldn't say caused by the pandemic, but I would say compounded by the pandemic because of the delay in treatment, the delay in picking things up. So where waiting lists were already poor, they have got significantly worse. Um, We've had a lot of, I I can't speak for hospitals, but, you know, me and my practice manager were reflecting about a year ago on the incredible churn of staff that, the pandemic caused a lot of people to reassess their vision for their life, their direction, whether they were happy doing what they were doing and, and gave people a chance to, to change or to move. Some of it was reactionary um, and some of it was, was an opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think that we have a huge staffing problem and where people really want, and I genuinely think most people go into the NHS for the right reasons. Um, you want to deliver good care. You want to make good decisions, the right decisions. No 
doctor, nurse, physio, you know, whatever area you're in goes into it because they just want to tick a box. You you want to, you genuinely want to see people get better and change their health, their health. Um, and it, what's frustrating is, is when you just don't have enough time to do that job. It can create anxiety in, in a clinician. It can um, make you feel like you failed. It can create a sense of shame. And it can also cause a lot of infighting and blame. So th this is something uh, and, and can create, therefore, a negative culture in wherever you're working. Now, I'm very lucky. My practice that I work in, I think, has got a very healthy culture, very supportive working environment. And we've been able to adapt because we're quite small and small things adapt quicker, don't they, than, than larger things. But what is frustrating is not having enough time to deliver the care that you would want to to deliver um, and that is something that we as clinicians experience regularly um, and then referring somebody on and knowing that they need to be seen within a certain time frame ideally for them to not receive you know experience negative consequences of their condition and then knowing that the, the waiting list is six months to a year and they can't afford private so they're just gonna they're just gonna not be able to walk uh, which then can then, you know, there's knock-on effect of then gaining weight or losing muscle mass and tone and depression, and mental health. There's so many knock-on consequences of, of waiting uh, and not getting the care that, that you want. So it's frustrating for the patients, it's frustrating for the clinicians. It's Even these days, I sometimes think, would it be better to send someone in via ambulance or get their relative to drive them into hospital even though that relative may not have oxygen in the car or something might happen because actually ultimately they need urgent care and they're going to be waiting far too long even if you get an experienced crew turning up it is they're you know you're making these sort of risk decisions all the time in your head of what would be the worst case scenario <laughs> what is the least worst option um, and that is uh, unfortunately not all the time but a place that we are we are working in. Much is made at the moment about how much the NHS and the health and, and health is of a proportion of Welsh government spends. Over half the Welsh government budget goes on the health service. And again, the discussion has raged on for a long time about whether that money should be put more of that money should be put into preventative health care or to other other departments that could lead to longer term, better health outcomes that isn't necessarily directly just more money for the NHS itself. Gemma, what do you make of that discussion? And whilst I think everyone would want more money for everything, there are some difficult choices to be made, right, in terms of preventative versus day-to-day -day healthcare spending. Yeah, I mean, we all wish there could be money for everything. I think that's going to be my answer. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, at a time like now, when uh, people like Will are suggesting that the uh, Welsh government doesn't spend enough on our NHS here in Wales, and then, but then also, you know, seeing the need that we do need to put money into prevention. So, you know, we a lot of our prevention programs are underfunded. Help Me Quit, for example, is not super accessible to people who actually want to quit smoking. Um, so, money is needed there. But then also, you know, the wider social determinants of health. I mean, you know, 
you have to invest in housing if you want people to be healthy. You have to make sure that people have warm homes if you want them to be healthy. Um, so it's really, really hard. I would never advocate for diverting money away from the NHS, but you have to make sure that other stuff is properly funded too. And everything almost across government has a health impact it really does so i think looking even even just looking at policies with that lens would be helpful rather than kind of specifically okay where does money need to exist because we only have so much of it and to be honest i think unless you actually sit in government and you have to make those decisions i think it's really hard to say where you think it should go but to at least acknowledge the health impacts of all other policies i think would be really really helpful as a start well what are your thoughts it's a I had a similar conversation with someone who works in homelessness and that there, there needs to be a shift to more rapid rehousing so instead of putting money into uh, emergency um, accommodation for people that money should go into longer term um, accommodation but actually you need to have a point where you're funding both um, before because it takes time for you can put lots of money into prevention but if people are sick and ill and dying now uh, you can't not fund that service as well so I think it's it's a coherent long-term plan which will straddle different governments. I think that's that's the issue that you can you can have as great a plan as you like, um, but if a change of government is going to mean that that is all just thrown out the window and old Millie in ten years' time they will just try the same thing over and over again anyway. Um, I think that's 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 the um, that's that's the issue. But yeah, obviously there has to be a, a change towards prevention because actually it's much more cost effective, as I understand it. Um, it's much more cost effective to invest in that and prevent something happening, or um, than to treat someone with an acute condition. Yeah, I mean, I think it. it I absolutely agree. I think you need both. <laughs> it, uh, you know, you've got to get people working in the right direction, all the systems in the right direction for it to work. It's not just prevention. It's not just education. It's not just social care. It's not just more money for more nurse training or doctors training or paramedics training. It's it's all of it working. And that's, I, I totally agree with Will. It can't just be one government bringing in a good idea here and a good idea there. The only way that you're going to get the NHS healthy again is, is actually all of it. It is, it's schools, it's social care, it's preventative policies it's tackling you know will you brought up gambling and advertising I mean that is it's huge in terms of mental health in terms of the link to addictions as well um, it's it affects families so it it is actually looking at the entire delivery of healthcare and realizing that it's hugely multifactorial and and people, you know, the system, the, the ship will only turn effectively if all the departments are working in the same direction with the same vision. Um, and I think that sometimes is the, is the danger is that we fear that with um, governmental changes that you're going to have shifts. And actually, you need to have almost a non-governmental policy that is, that is beyond government, really, um, that is supported by government, but it's beyond government. So you don't have the NHS, you know, and I know I'm quoting probably somebody else, being used as a political football. Um, so one party having one agenda with it, another party having another agenda with it. It's, it's too important to our nation. It's too part of our cultural identity now. Well, one of the key things about the NHS, of course, the reason we all love it so much is because 
well, for the most part, it's free. But I mean, there's been some recent polling from Ipsos that shows that seven in 10 people in the UK believe that there will be charges that will start to creep in for the health service over the next 10 years or so. Will, do you think these concerns are unfounded or do you think we are sort of already on that slow march towards some sort of paid or co-paid system? Um, I mean, I, I'm, I never cease to be amazed at our ability to monetize everything, but I don't know. I think it's, um, it, it won't be something that happens very, very quickly. Just, um, sorry to obsess over this Titanic analogy, but I love it so much. Um, I think the thing with the, um, I think the, thing with the, the iceberg, um, I don't think we should let not just current um, politicians and governments, but going back 20 years, this is an iceberg that suddenly come out of the mist. Like for decades, we've been saying there's a, aging population there's issues of obesity i mean don't even get started on climate change although then there would be no icebergs um but it, it's we've known this has been coming for a very very long time this isn't a shock and as you were saying with covid covid didn't take a healthy country and make it sick but welsh nhs had a lot of underlying health conditions didn't it in terms of the monetization i i things are as as Gemma said that things do have to change and things do have to evolve um i imagine there will be people and quite powerful people who are pushing in that direction to have certain things that you pay for especially potentially certain types of treatment but that doesn't that isn't doesn't have to be the way that's that's a choice that will be that will be made by politicians and whether voters allow them to do that is up to the voters i suppose yeah i think it's a shame that people feel that way um i think that would be kind of quite reactive and very short-term policy thinking and maybe potentially is quite dangerous i live hopeful that that won't happen uh, anything that kind of creates a barrier to to people accessing medicines and care just is is a bad thing and cost particularly has the ability to kind of drive such a massive wedge between those that can afford and those that cannot and so without knowing what what particularly people envisage what they will have to pay for in the NHS. I just, yeah, any, anything that, that creates an additional barrier, because we already know there are barriers to people accessing care, you know, not wanting to wait on the phone to get a GP appointment at eight o'clock in the morning, or, you know, just, just not wanting to know what's wrong with them or um, not recognizing symptoms or, you know, not, not wanting to go to screenings or, you know, there are a myriad of barriers to people already accessing care. And so, any others would just be potentially like catastrophic for, for health inequalities. That is the big fear, isn't it? I think it sort of, it implies a slight mistrust in government that there may be something going on underneath the surface. And, but then, you know, whenever have we not had a sense of mistrust in something, it's not a perfect system and governments aren't perfect. And let's be honest, clinicians aren't perfect. Patients aren't perfect. None of us are. I do think it would be very, very worrying if that happened. Um, you all you have to do is look at the dentistry uh, scenario where you look at NHS dentists. My husband can't get onto an NHS list. There is just isn't one in Cardiff at the moment. Um, I'm lucky to have an NHS dentist, as do my children, but I, I have to book eight months ahead of time to get in a routine check. Luckily, I don't have a huge amount of dental problems. But um, yeah, it's it's difficult. And like Will said, when you monetize something, it, you bring a whole other layer of influence in. Um, and I 
it would terrify me to see the NHS go gradually the direction of the US. Um, there was a brilliant film that actually when I was a GP trainee, we all watched as part of our training called Sicko. Uh, it's a Michael Moore documentary. I think is it Michael? Am I getting Michael Mosley or My Michael Moore? No, it is Michael Moore. If you know, I know. Um, it was it, it was terrifying, and I um, I spoke to some of my friends who are American, and I just said, you know, is this one person's agenda or is this genuinely um, the way it is in healthcare in the US? And she said, it's absolutely true. Everybody knows someone who's had to sell their home because of a condition. It is it is a big problem in the US, it, and it like Gemma is talking about health inequalities. It is even more extreme. You know, you're either in the US healthy and wealthy or you're very poor and very ill. And, you 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 know, you get through by luck in that sense. So that would be my feeling is that I, I love the NHS. I love the free at the point of service vision behind it that was coined by Iron Bevan back in 1948. And I really hope that we do everything we can to row or steam or move in the right direction that we can keep keep it afloat and keep it free for people to access without bias or burden i honestly think mental health in america where people must be thinking about having to pay for health care must be massive but it, it, it's a big issue in wales and the wider uk and it's been in the senate uh, in plenary debates in recent weeks how serious do you think that the parties take the question of mental health service. Do you think it's a poor relation or do you think it is becoming now a much more kind of understood area of healthcare, Jen? Yeah, I think it is becoming a better understood area of healthcare. I think that we are having conversations about, about mental health from a younger age. Uh, some of the stigma which we talk about quite a lot, don't we? Or we hear people talking about quite a lot associated with mental health. I think it is being broken down. I have definitely seen a change in consultation behaviour amongst patients over even the last 10 years in terms of the people you wouldn't necessarily expect to see coming in talking about their mental health. Uh, and I mean specifically men <laughs> um, are coming forwards and talking about it and not feeling that level potentially of embarrassment or shame that may have they may have experienced you see people coming in with their family members encouraging them to talk about it mental health though is 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 way wider than again like I say it's way wider than just the delivery of the mental health services it's understanding why we as a society have probably got mentally sicker over the last 20, 30 years that we may have a, a lot more going on in terms of society and progress, but I'm not sure our, our nation is mentally healthier in terms of our emotional resilience, in terms of our positive health-seeking behaviour. Um, we understand it better, which is the first, you know, the first starting point, but it's huge, you know, mental health, and it is a big burden on the NHS, but it's, it's a burden on work. It's not just you know, healthcare that it affects, it affects the workplace. And, you know, talk about staffing problems. One of the biggest causes of people being off is poor mental health. Um, and when you, you know, I mentioned earlier, when you feel like you can't do your job properly or you're failing at your job or you're drowning in your job, um, that can then cause people to go off 
stressed. And then if you don't have enough people to cover, that makes everybody else have to pick up the load even worse. And it's this vicious cycle of, of, of it being so multifactorial. So, yeah. yeah I, I think, I, th I think there were some stats out this week on uh, the vacancy rates in the NHS. I'm not, I don't think it went, oh, I didn't read mental health, but uh, you know, they are quite high. But Gemma, did you want to come in uh, there? I thought, yeah, just a, I think a bit of a positive slant, because I mean, you asked specifically kind of about how serious do the parties actually take uh, mental health. And I think so in part kind of, uh, I suppose I'm really pleased that people are much more able to talk about it now. And I wish we had the data to, to back this up, but we don't, you know, as you, like Jen just said, we have a society that seems sicker mentally, um, but you know, is it that actually we're just much more willing to and able to talk about these things much more openly? And so seeing some of that stigma removed is so, so positive and incredible. And, you know, just to think of kind of, you know, Andrew R.T. Davis stepped down and openly said, you know, because of mental health, mental health reasons and took a break. Uh, Delith Jewell and Sarah Murphy have, have you know, been absolute champions for, for eating disorders. Um, and the Minister for Health has been championing um, women's mental health and, and PTSD and and uh, domestic abuse. And so, you know, I think you really do have real champions with all the parties that really, really care about mental health. Mm. The delivery, however, is really different. And so, you know, just mentioning a few, few mental health conditions there, it kind of, it intersects with almost every other area of healthcare. So for example, you know, heart disease and people with who've had open heart surgery and how their rehab integrates mental health care, it's not set up quite right. And so, you know, it it, it intersects every other health condition. Um, and I'm not sure that the delivery of that yet is quite right. But overall, I think it's positive that people are able to talk about it. Yeah, I, I, sp I suppose when... Gemma said earlier about how there needs to be acknowledgement that policy decisions across all areas um, affect healthcare. And I think that the same might even be more so for, for mental health. Um, I mm. think um, if you speak about like young children, uh, young people's um, mental health, young people are more comfortable speaking about it than they were, which is really good. But also a lot of the things which were support networks aren't necessarily there in the same way so things like youth clubs and and stuff like that um also access to sport um for instance and actually access to employment from leaving um education settings is a, a huge safeguard for mental health um and i think for young men especially having that kind of ground of going into employment is is quite quite important especially from more deprived backgrounds so um and i think what happens is when when those things go the, these issues tend to present in a, just one of two places where the lights are still on which happens to be a and e and also within schools so we see teachers complaining now about huge amounts more pressure uh, from things like uh, mental health issues but also um issues at home as we said like uh, domestic violence and also people presenting in a and e because you know that's the place with the light on so um i i think um on, on the subject specifically mental health i think I agree. I think no politician is just paying lip service to it. They genuinely do want to, they do see it as a big issue. They do want to tackle it. I think potentially that sometimes ends when it comes to providing the ecosystem around it, which, because I mean, prevention is better than cured. I think it applies in mental health more than any anywhere, I think, especially when it comes to things like eating disorders and stuff, which are really complicated things to, to deal with once they've gone quite far down a path. But actually, tackling them early it has a hugely 
a hugely better outcome in terms of the success rate, but also financially. Thanks, everybody. Before we go, I, uh, with policy pods like this, we tend to ask the most absolutely ridiculous question to end. Um, so I hope you enjoy this one. So obviously, there is never a silver bullet for anything, especially something as uh, complicated as the NHS. But if you had simply one thing you could do to try and improve something in the NHS at the moment, what would it be? And because he uh, claims he's been stealing everyone's answers for a little bit, we're going to go with Will first. Oh, that's horrible. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, one, um, I don't think this is probably, I'm sure if I spent a little bit more time thinking about it, I could come up with something much more effective. But I think, I think an acknowledgement by um, decision makers of their own responsibility towards this um, would actually go, um, would go quite a long way. I think there is a, um, especially over certain issues, attempts to distance themselves from it. Now, of course, their argument would be the second that they try and own something, every journalist like me jumps down their throat and says, ah, look, look, look at how bad this is. But actually, I, I think it's so clear that there are a lot of issues now. I think pretending that they are tackling them effectively, I think is just clearly disingenuous. And I think actually an acknowledgement that we have got real issues and it's a lot of it stems from decisions that have been made by politicians, um, uh, not all of it, but but some of it. And I think owning that in a in a in a real way would actually mean that a lot of the energy in the future goes into to solving it, as opposed to um, just um, uh, insulating themselves politically from it. Gemma, uh, yeah, mine's a big one. Um, so I mean, <laughs> if we could kind of get Welsh government to to properly organize all of its departments to look at the commercial social economic determinants of health and to not work to kind of these one two three four five year cycles but to look 20 years ahead then i think you know being able to support a healthier population 20 years down the line i mean the gps in 20 years will will, will thank us for, do, for doing that so i think looking looking ahead and yeah, trying to trying to address all the things that are much wider than the NHS that are putting that burden on the NHS, which it just can't handle. It kind of sounds like some kind of well-being of future generations legislation might be useful here, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, what about you? So I mean, it's an impossible question. What one thing? Would yeah, that, I know this is why it's, it's always fun to ask the impossible question. I would love to see, the one thing I would love to see was the change in narrative. I love the NHS. Our country actually loved the NHS, but one of our favourite pastimes is moaning about the NHS. You know, we moan about getting appointments. We moan about not, not being able to, to see the GP we want to see. We moan about waiting lists. We moan about ambulance waiting. We moan about policies. We moan about the health of everybody else. I would I would love to see a change in the narrative to being celebratory to to see the positives because it isn't perfect it is so far from perfect as we have been discussing but wouldn't it be wonderful to to regularly celebrate it and champion it as much as we try to tear it down because I think once we once we spend and have an attitude of moaning and negativity it tends to it tends to create our attitude that how how we use it and and how we how we even politically talk about it as in it, it's it's when politicians talk about it they talk about how awful it is 
how broken it is, how it's sick. And, um, and I see on a regular basis the jewel that it is. It's, it is so beautiful that it is, we are helping people for free that couldn't otherwise be helped. I see people getting cured from cancer. I see people, you know, moving through their, you know, eating disorders, their poor mental health. I see children not dying from asthma that would have died from asthma 50, 60 years ago. I, I think it is a very, very beautiful thing. And um, that's the one thing I would love to see change. I think, I think that's why right at the start, Jen, I wanted to put something in which was celebratory. And I think it's all of that which can get lost in the the difficulty about trying to improve it. You know, what mm -hmm. you said about asthma. My daughter had something which she would have died of 60 years ago. Yeah. And the NHS is, the care that is out there is incredible. Mm -hmm. Matt? Thank you to all of you for coming on this evening and talking to us about everything. Well, not quite everything, but as we you know, it's quite a titanic subject, so nearly as much as we can about the NHS tonight. Um, really appreciate your time. If people want to hear more from you on social media, where can they go and find you? Jen? I'm not on social media, sorry. Very wise, very wise. <laughs> it's not very good for my mental health. <laughs> Gemma? Yeah, no, also not on social media. Wow, we're down, I we're would down. have been absolutely slated last week after <laughs> all the obesity stuff, and I just wasn't ready for that. Okay. So nowhere near it. LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's a safe space. Uh, Will? Uh, you can actually, I am on social media and you can come and slate me and many people do take up that offer. Um, so it's at Will Hey Cardiff on Twitter. Wonderful. Thank you again to uh, all our guests this evening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find Here I on all the socials at Here I Pod. You can go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. And thank you very much for supporting us with your ears. But if you would like to do so with your wallet, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Here Pod. Thank you for listening to Here If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.